Today I want to talk with you about God wants to restore you. You ever seen a car that's been restored? Something, you know, from like 40, 50 years ago? Just beautiful, right? Hopper took us to a body shop a couple weeks ago. Of a, it's a restoration shop. And man, I just, I love that stuff. You walk around and you see cars that have been restored. I mean, take a look at some of these, these pictures. Look at that car. Some of you remember this car when it was brand new, but don't raise your hand if it was you, all right? Isn't that beautiful? And I love this one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 69 Camaro. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Just look at that. And do y'all remember the Munsters? Remember the Munsters? Anybody? Yeah. So they actually had, this is one of three of, of the roadsters that they used in the, in the TV show. And so they're re- doing some restoration on it. Isn't that cool? Pretty awesome. So beyond a restoration place, there's also a place called a junkyard. You ever been to a junkyard? They all smell the same. You know what I mean? And the workers all smell the same too, right? It's a universal smell. The owner of a, of a salvage yard buys cars so that either they can take them apart or you can come in and pull and pick, pick and pull what you want and take it off and, and put it on your own car. They buy cars so that they can part them out, right? It's a completely different thing than a, a restoration place. They don't, the, the, the pick and pull places don't buy cars to restore them. They buy cars to take them apart so that others can be fixed. And here's what we're going to talk about today. God isn't a salvage yard. He's not running a salvage yard. God is in the restoration business. Isn't that awesome to think about? He didn't buy you with the blood of Jesus to part you out. He bought you to restore you. What a beautiful picture. All the time I talk with people who think, you know, uh, I'm no longer worth fixing. I've done the math and I'm not worth fixing. I I just heard a a statistic John Michael told me about. Did you know that in Canada, the sixth leading cause of death in Canada now is euthanasia? When you go in to... (laughs) When you go in and and you've got something wrong with you, they start running the math and they say, well, it's not, you're not worth fixing. Financially, you're not worth fixing. So here are your options. And I talk to people all the time. They say, well, I'm not worth fixing. I've I've done too many things wrong. My life is over. You can part me out. Maybe others can be fixed. And, And, you know, some feel like their best days are behind them already. Others feel like, Maybe they feel like a, a teenager drove, their, you know, when a teenager drives a car, you don't want to buy that car, right? And some people feel like that's their life. I've been driven like a teenager driving a car, and, and I've been used and abused, or maybe you had one major accident, and it's left you on the side of the road or left you in the backyard with a cover over you, and you feel like that that's your life. 
And that is, that is what God is buying you for. That's what God has purchased you for because he wants to restore you no matter how difficult the accident was or no matter how difficult the situation in life was. You see, we look at it and we say, okay, one wrong post can really mess up our lives these days, right? On social media. One wrong picture. Uh, one slander from somebody on social media can really mess up your life. One wrong relationship can maybe seem, seem like it's devastated our lives, right? And, and uh, maybe it's an addiction or a health problem or a bankruptcy or a parent's voice that all you can hear is that parent's voice like a recording in your head over and over and over what they said to you growing up. How is God going to restore that? Siblings that were jealous of you. Or maybe your own sin, your own failures, your own mess-ups. And you say, you know what? I've done too much. Just part me out. Just part me out. You see, God wants to burn those things away today. He wants to burn those things away today, and He wants to restore you. In the Old Testament, there's the story of Moses, the man that God used to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. You all have heard of Moses, right? Well, when Moses was born, his mother hid him because because the Egyptians were afraid that the Israelites were going to outnumber them, so they decided that they would kill all of the, the, the males in each family that was born. And they were going to protect Egypt from being taken over by the Israelites in that way. So when he was too much to hide, though, and she realized, okay, they're going to come find him because he's crying too loud and all of that, she decided, you know what, I'm going to trust my baby to God. So she took him down to the Nile River, and she put him into a basket, and she, she said, okay, you know what, God, he's yours. If he lives, he lives. If he dies, that's yours. And she let him go. Well, it just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter was just there at just the right time. And she found that baby and she took him in as her own. And Moses became the grandson of Pharaoh. It's a great story. The story doesn't go into detail as Moses grows up how he finds out that he's actually a Hebrew. But somewhere along the way he finds out and and he realizes those people that are being enslaved beaten and being used by Egypt, by my family, those people are actually my family. We don't know how or when he found out, but he found out. Well, one day when Moses was 40 years old, he went and he was watching his people labor under those conditions. And you can imagine how he felt. Why am I living in the palace? Why am I living with these people while my people, my actual people, are out there and they're suffering? Why am I so privileged while they're enslaved? You can imagine his emotions were very mixed. He was feeling guilty for growing up in the palace and, and being treated the way that he was as though he was a prince, but loving his, and loving his royal family, the very people that had enslaved his people. And looking over all the work being done that day, suddenly he heard something over here and he looked and it was somebody, it was an an Egyptian that was actually beating a Hebrew. And the combination of guilt and anger began to build inside of Moses. And you can imagine he was thinking, can I live with myself if I do nothing about that? Can I live with myself if I don't go and stop that? And Moses was enraged, and the scripture says he looked around to see if anybody was watching, and he went over and he killed the Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. 
The next day he went out and he saw a couple of Hebrews fighting. And he stopped them. He said, guys, what are you doing? And he asked the guy that was obviously in the wrong. He said, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses realized, oh man, everybody knows about this. This is a problem. Well, Pharaoh actually heard about the murder and he was going to kill Moses as a result of it as well, his own grandson. Well, Moses had to run. He went out to the land called Midian and he found his wife. Her name was Zipporah, beautiful woman. And he lived there for 40 years. All right, so now do the math. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years out in the wilderness or in, in Midian. He's 80 years old and the scripture says this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Their cry went up to God. When you pray, God listens. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So he looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. You see, God had a plan to restore the Israelites, but he needed to restore Moses first. Moses, by this time in his life, he was a murderer. He was rejected by the Egyptians. He was rejected by the Israelites. And he was rejected by the royal family. Moses' life was a mess and he was 80 years old. Well, one day he was out tending his father's flocks, his flock of sheep, his father-in-law's flock of sheep, that is. And he led them to the far side of the wilderness to a place called Horeb. And if you remember Horeb, Horeb is the mountain of God. Many years later, at this mountain, it was Moses at this mountain where God gave him the Ten Commandments. It was at this mountain that God did the great display of lightning and thunder and billows of smoke and he shook the earth. It was at this place many years later and Moses just wandered over there with, with his father-in-law's sheep. And it was on this mountain actually that the Ark of the Covenant would be built. The mountain of God. Moses found himself there, a seemingly normal day that was about to turn Moses' life completely around. Moses, at 80 years old, get this in your mind, at 80 years old, he was out tending his father-in-law's sheep. His life had amounted to nothing at this point. He didn't even own his own sheep. He grew up in a palace, probably the richest place in the world at that time. And now at 80 years old, he couldn't point to anything and say, I built it, I did it, except for my family is right here. And that's all I've got are some kids and my wife. I don't even own sheep. 80 years old. He was a fugitive, a murderer. He married a preacher's daughter and became a servant to his father-in-law for the last 40 years of his life. And suddenly there's a bush on fire. He's like, what is that? Scripture says, <clears throat> there an angel of the Lord appeared to him from a burning bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not burning up. This is strange. He said, I'll go over and I'll see why the bush isn't burning up. God saw Moses coming near the bush and he said, Moses, don't come any closer. 
Take off your sandals. The ground where you're standing is holy. I am the God who was worshipped by your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses was afraid to look at God, so he hid his face. Listen, everything God does, everything God does is with purpose. There was symbolism in this. A burning bush that wasn't burning up. It signified something. That God was going to restore His people. You see, fire can destroy. Fire can wipe out everything, right? But fire can also purify and cleanse. It can make something that's not useful, useful. Because of the heat. And although the bush was on fire, the bush wasn't being burned. And God was saying to Moses that he would burn away his past. And God was also saying that he would purify and cleanse his people from slavery in Egypt without destroying them. You see, the Israelites weren't just enslaved by the Egyptians. They were also enslaved through their own sinful desires to that life. They didn't realize that they were accustomed to this this life of slavery to the point that they would have to be broken away from it. God knew that delivering the Egyptians was going to be so much easier than what he had to face with them, and that was getting them to let go of their security of Egypt over and over as they walked through the wilderness for the next 40 years after their deliverance. They would beg and plead, can't we just go back to Egypt? At least we knew where our food was coming from and where we lived and everything was easier there even though we were enslaved and although they groaned and cried out for God to save them they didn't realize how much they were addicted to their life of slavery for them to be restored God had a lot of work to do after Moses removed his sandals and approached the bush it says he said this I've seen how my people are suffering as slaves in Egypt And I've heard them beg for my help because of the way they're being mistreated. I feel sorry for them. And I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians. I will bring my people out of Egypt into a country where there is good land, rich with milk and honey. I will give them the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and all these otherites live. My people have begged for my help, and I've seen how cruel the Egyptians are to them. Now go to the king. I am sending you to lead my people out of this country. And Moses is like... I'm 80 years old. I stutter. And it's really interesting when you read the story, when you read through it, God actually gets angry with Moses and he's like, look, I'm sending you. I'm God. I'm sending you. I will be with you and you can do this. What was God doing? God was restoring Moses' life. Well, I'm 80 years old, John. I don't need my life restored. Really? What if the next five to ten years of your life are the most productive years of your life ever? And for Moses, my goodness, look what he did at such an old age. Not only was he about to restore his life, but he was about to restore the Israelites, who had been enslaved for 400 years. He was going to bring them out of Egypt 
to the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why did God use the burning bush as a symbol? Well, you need to know that God is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. Something was being burned up, just not the bush. Many times in Scripture we find where God is called the God who is a consuming fire. Now this is where people struggle to, to understand the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament and, and Jesus. That We have a hard time connecting those two for some reason. I even know Christians that won't read the Old Testament because they're afraid it's going to mess up their vision of who Jesus is. It's really interesting, but you've got to understand the same God, Old Testament, New Testament, same God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 9. But understand that today the Lord your God goes across ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Smoke rose from his nostrils and consuming fire came out of his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth. Psalm 97.3. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Isaiah 33.14. The the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trampling grips the, the ungodly. Who of us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting flames? So what is the point of this? How can God, who is a consuming fire, also be a God who restores? How is that possible if He just goes in and consumes everything, just wipes it out? How can He also be a God who restores? You see, God only consumes and destroys the bad. God's fire melts chains. God's fire melts ropes. God's fire consumes anything that is going to keep you and me from being restored in our lives. God's fire sets us free. God was only saying to Moses, listen Moses, I'm here to restore, not to destroy. That's what the fire means. That's huge. You see, the fire may get hot. Especially as he was about to go into Egypt, it's going to get hot. Things are going to heat up before my people get let go. But we got to get that fire hot and we got to free them from their chains of bondage. I'm going to restore them. That's huge. You see, God's fire is never to destroy his people, God's fire is to set them free. God's fire is to burn away what keeps you from restoration. The heat of life, the strife, the struggles, the difficulties, the problems, every struggle that you go through in this life, it's not to bind you, it's not to keep you in in chains of bondage, it's actually to free you, it's actually to set you free. Some of you have been facing some of the toughest times in your lives, but you have to remember that God promises to His people, He will never consume you, He will free you if you let Him. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, he says. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. That's God's promise to us. What is the fire for? The fire is there for you to see. He's not there to consume you. He's to set you free. You see, God wants you to make a comeback, even if you're 80 years old. God wants to see you have a new beginning, even if you're 90. 
God wants to give you a great rest of your life. Even if you're 20 and you feel like your life is over, God wants to give you a new beginning. This is the God who restores. This is His character. It is who He is. He is not, he's not here to consume you. He's here to consume the chains that bind you. He's here to fix you. He's here to restore you. He's here to make you like He expected you to be when He created you. One of the necessary prerequisites, though, for God to restore you is that you've got to recognize you need to be restored. You've got to be willing to see your dents, right? You've got to be willing to look and go, oh man, I wish somebody would fix that for me. And when someone comes to God and they don't recognize their faults and failures and pains and struggles, there's not much for God to be able to work with because they're like, no, don't you touch that. No, don't mess with me, God. I just want to get to heaven. I don't want to be fixed. I don't want to be restored. Just take me the way that I am. I just want to endure the rest of this life. And God's like, uh-uh. I didn't buy you to part you out. I bought you to restore you. Now let me get to work on you, right? One day Jesus was talking by the lakeside. <clears throat> and as he was walking around and he was teaching and stuff, he looked over and there was a guy named Levi sitting at his booth. He was a tax collector. Now listen, when tax collectors, in those days, tax collectors, probably not too much different today, I just don't know any, which kind of makes the point. Uh, tax collectors, when you signed up to be a tax collector, basically you were signing up to be ostracized, not just from the community, but from your family. You were going to be hated in the community, right? I mean, his job was to sit there and watch when somebody would come riding in on a nice brand new camel. He's like, man, that one's that one is, is tricked out with some LEDs, and it's got some powder-coated hoops. <clears throat> you know? I'm suspicious. So what would he do? He'd go and he'd start looking in the guy's life, and he'd try to figure out, okay, where's your money? Where are you hiding your money? And these guys were absolutely hated, hated by the people in the community and their families. Their only friends were people like them. They were crooks. And Jesus walks up to Levi as he's sitting there doing his job, and he says, follow me. Immediately, he gets up and he follows Jesus, not just to the seashore or anything. He literally left his life. He left behind his job. He left everything behind, and he said, follow me. And he does. So it's really interesting. After Matthew or he actually, his name is Matthew to us. Matthew is the Greek word, the Greek name for the, the Hebrew name, which is Levi. So it was Matthew that we're talking about. Well, Matthew had come to Christ. He started following Jesus. And afterwards, he invited all his friends, which were his co-workers, these crooks, over to the house. He's like, hey, guys, we're going to have a party. Come on over to my house. So they came over. And you can imagine what kind of guys these were. I mean, these were, these were all tax collectors, you know. They were wealthy but crude people. You can only imagine what kind of conversation they were having at, at, their, at, at his house that day. You can imagine their language. You can imagine their defensive attitudes, just fighting with one another. Well, Matthew wanted all of his friends to meet Jesus. And so he invited all of them over. And let me ask you this. Have you ever walked into a situation where everybody in the room was way more experienced at sin than you? You ever done that? And you're like, oh man, I don't know how I fit in here. 
these people, they've got street smarts times 10, right? That's what was in the room. And Jesus walks in. God walks in the room. And let that sink in. Jesus wasn't there to condemn. He walked in that room to restore. He wasn't looking for parts because he's got some believers that need some help over here. I'm going to part these guys out. He was looking to restore every person in that room. And what's interesting also is Matthew knew. He knew that's what Jesus would be. And he invited him because he wanted all of his friends to see and feel how Jesus made him feel. He knew that he came into that room to restore And he knew that those guys would sense and feel the love that he felt and the acceptance that he felt. Not that they shouldn't change their lives. you got to remember, Matthew had to realize that he needed restored too, right? But he knew that Jesus would have such a demeanor. Oh, but look what the religious people said. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. What's he saying? It's not the people who think they're healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick people, the people that know they're sick, the people that know that they need me. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For the first time in Matthew's life, he found a group of people who loved him, that he could fit in and work with and appreciate that was good in his life. Matthew went on to write the first book in the New Testament is where it's placed, the Gospel of Matthew. He knew Jesus loved him, and he let him restore him. You see, Jesus came to restore people. He came to restore you. You're no exception. In fact, he'd like to celebrate with you a life of restoration. One of the biggest prerequisites for a human to be restored by God is to recognize their need to be restored. Do you need restoring today? You see, God doesn't want you to confess your sins so that he can rub your nose in it. Oh, you did that? Well, let me if you have dogs rub your nose in it and that's not why we're here as a church family oh did you hear what they did no we're here to restore he wants you to understand that your need to be restored is there 
And if you don't understand that, what's going to happen is you're going to begin protesting his restoration when the work begins. Well, I didn't know I needed to change that. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Jesus, we're coming to. You got to leave the old life behind. Come on, how has it worked for you? How has it worked for you? How's it working out? Your way of thinking, your way of doing things, how's that working for you? And like Matthew, to get up and say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to let you restore me. So how true is this one? Isn't that great? <laughs> guys, are, the guys aren't laughing. <laughs> so, nope, I'm not saying a word. No, it's so true, though. You know, it takes work to see where I'm wrong in my relationships. It takes work to see where I'm wrong. You know, I scratch my head. Why is that person mad? I don't understand. I, I don't even know what I did. And it takes work to try to figure those things out. And it takes work in our relationship with God to understand, you know what? I'm, I've messed up. Why? Because we're so defensive. I need to be right. Why are we so afraid of being wrong? Why are we so afraid of being wrong? I think when we look at the cross... The question is, was that overkill? No, it was God screaming, look, this is how wrong you are, and I know it, and everybody knows it. <laughs> you don't need to be right, you just need to be restored. And you need to trust in Jesus until you get all that restoration done. And one day, poof, we get to cross that Jordan River, and boy, will you be restored. It's going to be awesome. And what's funny is while we're so afraid of being wrong and messing up, everybody around us is, you know, we, we know it. You know it, right? You know, it's kind of like when, when you see a picture of your peripheral. Anybody seen a picture of your, your side view for a while or in a while? You know, you, you see a picture and you're like, oh, man, we need to delete that picture. I don't like that picture. It's got a little hump down here and my nose bridge is a little bit big. <laughs> delete that picture. When you delete that picture, is it actually going to fix the, the issues? <laughs> and here's what's funny. Everybody else sees you looking like that all the time. You don't, but we do. You know what I'm saying? And we know when each other are wrong. And, and the question is, are we just going to smear each other's face in being wrong? Or are we just going to help God restore each other? You know, our brains are working over trying to keep time to try to keep us from feeling bad about ourselves. And we don't need to do that. You just need to love yourself. Love yourself. The beauty of what Jesus did on the cross is that the more we admit we're wrong, the more right we become. As a parent, I'm so proud of my kids when they own their mistakes and they go and they make things right. Rather than I'd, I'd rather them do that than being right all the time. And when you bring your damaged life to God, 
Don't refuse to see how damaged it is. Embrace it and let him restore you. One day, Jesus went into a Pharisee's home. His name was Simon. And he was going to eat there that day. He'd been invited by this guy. And so everybody came and there was a bunch of gathering in this guy's house. And and a particularly sinful woman from the community came in, and she came, and, and she, she you, as you can imagine, why she was particularly sinful in the community. And she heard that Jesus would be there, and so she came in, and she, she had brought a big, big bottle of oil. The scripture says that it was a year's salary worth of oil. That's a lot of oil, and that's expensive, right? And, and she gets in the house somehow, and, and listen, here's this broken woman. She's broken. She was abused may, as a child, maybe. We don't know. Or maybe she grew up in a dysfunctional home. We're not sure what her situation was. Maybe she was an illegitimate child, and so she had a problem being passed on to marriage. Or maybe she was a widow that was just struggling to survive. We're not sure what her situation was. But we do know this. She was broken. She was hurting. And she didn't come to Jesus with reasons or excuses for what she's done that that day. She wasn't paying attention to what the religious people thought about her as she walked into the room. She wasn't worried about that. She had a bottle of oil and she had one thing in mind. She wanted to do something that was meaningful for Jesus and with Jesus. Inwardly, she was broken. She was bleeding. She was wounded. And Jesus is laying there next to the table, leaning on his left arm with his feet behind him. And and you can imagine as she came in, it says, then she came and stood behind Jesus. She cried and she started washing his feet with her tears. That's a lot of tears. And drying them with her hair. The woman kissed his feet And poured perfume on them. Imagine how broken of a moment this is for a woman to kneel down and be kissing someone's feet. Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee who had invited Jesus, Simon, saw this and said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she's a sinner. And Jesus turned to to the Pharisee knowing what he thought. He said, I have something to say to you. I don't know about you. If Jesus ever turned to me and said that, you know, my stomach is gone. And Jesus said, Simon, two people were in debt to a money lender. One of them owed him 500 silver coins and the other owed him 50. Since neither of them could pay him back, the money lender said that they they didn't have to pay him anything. Which one of them, which one of them will like him more. Obviously the one that owed him more. He's like, yep, you're right. And then the scripture is very, very descriptive here. It says, Jesus turned away from Simon and he looked the woman in the eye and he spoke to her while he's talking to Simon. What is he saying? He's saying, what I'm about to say is more for her, even though I'm responding to you. So he's looking at her, responding to Simon. He says, Simon, have you noticed this woman? When I came into your home, and he's staring at her, you didn't give me any water so that I could wash my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. 
You didn't greet me with a kiss. And he's staring at her. But from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't even pour olive oil on my head, but she has poured expensive perfume on my feet. So I tell you that all her sins are forgiven, and that is why she has grown this, shown this great love. But anyone who has been forgiven for only a little will only show a little love. Has Simon been forgiven for a little or a lot? Probably a lot, but he doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't look and say, you know what? I, I, I need Jesus in my life. He doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't understand how offensive his sin is to God. And then Jesus looked at the woman and he said, your sins are forgiven. What is he doing? He's restoring her. This broken woman who has hurt so much, who has made so many mistakes in, his, in her life, he's restoring her. In a moment with grace and love, Jesus was doing what? He was burning away her past. You see, God doesn't want to consume you with His fire. He wants to burn away the old and give you a new life. God's consuming fire only burns away the bad. A better life, a good life with great hope. I have a friend, he was addicted to meth for many years. One day an old friend saw him and invited him to come to church. He said, sure, I'll come to church. While he was sitting there and the preacher was preaching, God began communicating with him, I accept you, I love you. He gave his heart to Christ that day. And in that moment, God's fire burned away the addiction. When you see this guy, you'd never think that he ever was on meth. Never would think it. God's fire burned it away. Today, He's received a promotion at work. He's got a family. He's got a wife and kids, teenage daughters now. You'd never dream his life was headed for the junkyard. But God restored him. Our firm decision is to work from this focused center. One man died for everyone. That includes you. That puts everyone in the same boat. We're all in this together. He included everyone in his death. Everybody say everyone. That's you. He included everyone. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. A resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. Aren't you tired of trying to live this life on your own? Because of this decision to work from this focused center, this is our focus. 
Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside and we see what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. Anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone. A new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and Him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with Himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what He's doing. We're Christ's representatives. That's awesome. God didn't buy you to part you out. He bought you to restore you. And with that, there's this responsibility. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's what it says. You don't belong to you anymore. This body doesn't belong to you anymore. You were bought at a price. And God wants to restore you. What do you do when you buy a used home, a used car, used appliance? What do you do? You get out the SOS pad, you get the stuff, and you start scrubbing it up. What are you trying to do? You're going to try to make that look like, man, I, I made a great purchase. It's like brand new. And then we go and we brag about it. Look, I only paid 20 bucks for this. It's awesome. What a deal. If we as humans in our selfish and corrupt hearts want to do that with a purchase that we make, how much more does God want to do that with the people he has bought with his own blood? Your reputation, God wants to restore it. Your marriage, God wants to restore it. What that addiction took from you, God wants to restore it. Your health, God wants to restore it. Your finances, God wants to restore it. All of it. Your bad decisions that you made, God wants to turn it into something good. He's a God who restores. That's who He is. That's his character, and that's what he'll do for you. But you got to ask him. You got to let him. You got to look and say, God, I need restored. I need it. Would you bow your heads? Today can be a day of healing for you if you let it. Have you truly let God take over your life? Have you been like Levi or Matthew? Today he says to you, follow me. Are you like them or him? It would, that you would get up and just follow him? Say, yes. God, I, I, I realize that's my old life. I want a new life in Christ. 
Have you done that? Turn your life over to Him today. You know, sometimes we want to hold on to bitterness and strife because somebody owes us something. God says, I can pay you far more than they ever could. If you'll forgive them and give it over to me, I will pay you. I will take care of you. I will give you way more than you could ever ask or imagine from that person that owes you. It's time to let it go. Let him restore you today. Maybe you're here and you haven't accepted Christ into your life or maybe it's been a long time since you've done it and you just kind of walked away and the book of Hebrews talks about wandering away, drifting away. You've drifted away. Today's the day to reestablish that relationship. He says, follow me. Follow me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who restores. And today we ask you, fill our hearts, our minds, our soul with your presence as we determine in our hearts to be restored. God, we can all look back on our lives and see where damage has happened. We thank you for being a God that has bought us and paid for us, loves us, and wants to make our lives new. So today we say thank you. Thank you for being our God. Maybe there's someone here today, Father, that's turned their heart back over to you in a fresh and new way. You want to restore that relationship. And like the prodigal son walking down the road, coming to see his father, you'll run to them as you see him coming right now in prayer. Thank you, Father. Wrap your arms around him. We know that you do. And say, welcome home, my child. Thank you, Father. We give you our hearts and our lives. We give you our future, our hopes, our dreams. They're now wrapped up in you. You're our God. In Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if today you gave your heart back to Christ, I just want to give you the opportunity to say, yeah, today, on this day, September 4th, 2022 this is the day of the rest of my life with God I want you to just look up at me until my eyes catch yours if that's you you accepted Christ today gave your heart to him in a new way alright anybody else alright anybody else okay amen 